Women are like boxers training at high altitude. And we've been outperforming men actually at school for a century. So this isn't a new innovation too. It's not like women have only just stumbled upon our innate intelligence. This is, I think in some ways, your ability to endure in systems that are not built for you makes you incredibly strong, who are extra steps removed from power. Welcome back to the Essentially You podcast. I am your host, Dr. Marisa Snyder, and I'm here to help you rock your hormones and feel great in your body so that you can reclaim more energy, vitality, and joy and become the CEO of your health. Let's jump on in. Since becoming a mom to my adorable two-and-a-half-year-old, my workload has more than doubled, and recently I have been feeling the weight of everything on my shoulders. To put it lightly, I am feeling burned out, and the mental exhaustion is real. Like many other women and moms that I know, I've always prided myself in keeping all of the balls in the air, and I have perfected being able to do it all, often without flinching. Whether it's the bills or all the appointments, the party planning, sending cards and gifts, shopping, cleaning the house, putting toys away every night, unloading and loading the dishwasher and laundry, keeping my son on a routine from morning until bedtime, prepping day trips, weekend trips, vacations, and making sure that there are diapers fully stocked all over the house, along with clothes being cleaned and ready to go. In my work life, I pride myself on hitting all of my deliverables and deadlines, come rain or shine. Whether it's a book deadline or a podcast deadline or a big project deadline, like the one that I'm finalizing today, along with keeping my inbox organized, attending team meetings, interviewing amazing guests for the podcast, and making sure that I'm approving all of my company's email content, not to mention the many aspects of the Essentially Whole supplement line and being the face of the Dr. Marisa and Essentially Whole brands. And that really means that I am showing up and I am playing full out, not only as the leader of my companies, but also to show up for all the women that I am so grateful to support, all while maintaining healthy eating habits, self-care, meditation, friendships, outreach to colleagues, along with walking over 10,000 steps every single day and being fully present with my son when I am with him while keeping him off of screens and TV. And did I mention food prep and so many other mundane tasks that I unconsciously do every single day? Honestly, I couldn't even list all the things that I do. There is rarely a moment when my brain stops running a to-do list Because everywhere I turn, there is something new to do. It's really endless. I have more than enough to do that I never really need to stop and sit if I don't want to. But here's the thing. I feel like I've been programmed to operate like this my entire life since I was a little girl. That this way of being in the world has been ingrained in me from the start. And I have a feeling This is probably the case for you too. I know that I am not the only one out there working overtime every single day, and I feel I carry the bulk of the household and caregiving responsibilities on top of all of the career work too. And this isn't just a feeling that I have. The stats across the board back it up. And we are feeling so burned out because of it. And not only that, 
our hormones are imbalanced, our mitochondrial dysfunctional, our metabolic system isn't working properly, we are not getting good sleep, we are feeling stressed, we have higher rates of depression, we have higher rates of autoimmunity, I will tell you that our bodies are taking a beating. And we have been convinced to put others' needs ahead of our own. And I believe that we have been told that this makes us good moms and good women. But journalist and formal chief content officer of Goop, Elise Lohan, explains that these impulses, often lauded as unselfish and distinctly feminine instincts, are actually ingrained in us by a culture that reaps the benefits via an extraordinarily effective collection known as the Seven Deadly Sins, via our very systemic patriarchal system. And today I invite Elise to share about her new New York Times bestselling book on our best behavior and how the seven deadly sins subconsciously play out in our programming to obey the rules represented by these sins and how doing so qualifies us as being good and perfect. Now, before we get into this epic conversation that I know I feel like all of us kind of feel at our core and gut, I want to just quickly sing her praises. Elise Lohan is a writer, editor, and the host of the podcast, Pulling the Thread. She lives in Los Angeles with her husband and her two boys. She has co-written 12 books, including five New York Times bestsellers, and she currently has her own New York Times bestseller as of a couple weeks ago called On Our Best Behavior. She has co-hosted the Goop podcast and the Goop Lab on Netflix, and she has interviewed hundreds of thought leaders, doctors, and experts. Let's welcome Elise to the show. Welcome, Elise, to the Essentially You podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing really well, actually. I'm in the corner of my bedroom, which is where I like to be. And my book has been out for two weeks. And it's been today. Yeah, exactly. And it's been a total dream. And it's funny to have an experience where I was very clear with myself. I made it was I made myself be clear with myself about what I wanted, and this is what I wanted. So I know. Ooh. So how does it feel? How does it feel to get what you wanted? To get the book? To get to say what you wanted to say? To get to have the deep conversations? And to get this book out into the world, which goodness knows takes well over two years to get this book baby out in the world, way longer than making real babies. And then it is so well-received. It's the New York Times. You get the call. Like, how does that feel? Funny, because in many ways, it's felt this entire process has been, and I know faith is kind of a tricky word, and I don't mean it in sort of a... I. And novel, I'm not affiliated with any religion and I don't sort of constrain myself by any belief system, but I have had a lot of faith in this project that, that there was a metaphysical container for this book that I was tapping into, that I was expressing or writing about things that women know and that live in us sometimes just below the surface, sometimes on top of the surface and that I could, that my gift is distillation and bringing together lots of different, interesting, disparate sources. And that I could sort of access some of this information for people or bring it out of the subconscious in a way that would be resonant. And 
not that I was sort of exposing anything new, almost on the contrary, saying these are all things that we know and have felt. And this is the system that unifies them. And this is where it came from. And that I could create the context around so many women's lived experiences. And so I've had a lot of faith in the project because it felt like I knew it would resonate. And I don't mean that. And it's funny because I write about pride um, and it's my instinct like it is for all most other women I know to deflect praise and to minimize everything that I've done. So for me to even say like I could feel the resonance of the book. I mean, I also, you know, I feel like it was in some ways channeled. It's built on uh, the collective wisdom of so many people many, many, many women, like the bibliography and the endnotes of this book are intense. It's a conversation across time with other thinkers. And and so in that sense, like I just, I spent so much time and energy building this web and I knew that it would hold. And so in many ways, it's surprising. Yes, because it's always surprising. Like none of this stuff, it's my first book. Like you cannot engineer this. You can't predict it. You can't control for it, but I knew the book would find what I thought would happen is that it would take a while, but that it would find its readers and be passed on in that way, women to women primarily, although I hope men read it as well. But it's just happened much faster and at a much like higher level than I thought. And that's a really exciting surprise. Yeah. Well, and yes, and more and more women are going to find it and more and more women are going to be talking about it. And it's going to keep having that long tail that you just kind of imagined it would, that it would be continue to be in conversation. Okay. So on our best behavior, the second, the second I saw the title, I was like, I got to have the book. I got to have the conversation. Like I just, this is it. And and it's it so connects into the work that I do of, you know, I take care of women who, because they've been, you know, operating in this good girl mentality and subconsciously, un- unknowingly, and knowingly and unknowingly. I think a lot of things that we do, we don't even realize we're doing it. And, and then they're sick. So they're burned out. They've got chronic, you know, health issues and um, they're struggling with energy and, you know, and that's kind of where I, that's where women come to me and, you know, that, that pervasiveness of us just kind of running ourselves in the ground and because of the the seven deadly sins that we don't even know that we're subscribing to per se. And so for you, yeah. And I know, you know, you've noticed it in yourself in, in the life that you've lived and having this beautiful career and having children and, you know, all the things, you know, kind of what were, what was driving us for these things. A thousand percent. I mean, you mentioned it sort of, we don't, these things are in us and they run us without our conscious participation or without actively subscribing to these ideas. And I think about my life and, you know, I grew up in nature in Montana to liberal parents who are not patriarchal at all. Um, I went to a school with no grades where we sort of made found object art and jumped the ditch at lunch, like without a lot of structure and rules. I didn't grow up in any religion. And so for me, it was this, you know, still feeling chased by perfectionistic tendencies, by not feeling good enough, 
by sort of always having a cattle prod at my own butt, you know, driving me to do more and be more to other people. And so to to recognize like, okay, I'm a white woman of privilege and I am still sort of, I don't have the emotional freedom that I feel like I should. I am still completely constrained by culture. And that was sort of the starting point for me. If I don't feel safe and secure, if I feel lashed by these ideas of not being good enough, not being thin enough, not being smart enough, all of the not enoughness that I think so many women share, then what was it in us, all of us? What is the sort of air that we're breathing, the water that we're swimming in? This We hear a word like patriarchy, and I think many people roll their eyes or they're like, I don't even know what that is, or it sounds like a boogeyman. and Or it's not really true. Exactly. And then what I was finding too, is I would look at this, this chasm between my experience of the world and my experience of many men in the world and a lack of equity. And some of this is so multifactorial, like it has to do with race, class, like all of these are are far more, it's all far more complex than simply gender. We know that within sort of even, you know, the pay gap. A single women, particularly white women, earn are, have pay parity with men. It's mothers, it's women of color, it's class, education, et cetera. So, but I recognize, like, I look at my life, I look at the men, I look at the male bosses I've had. I do not, yes, there are Harvey Weinsteins. Yes, there's terribly misogynistic men. Certainly, there are lawmakers who are full of hate. There's certainly those factors in our culture. But to me, it didn't explain what was happening for women and why there's such a gap between where we are and where we should be and where we want to be in terms of equitable representation, et cetera. And so I had to, and then you look at all the social studies, all the social science, you look at the 2016 election, you look at social science coming out of workplaces, and it's just evidence not only of women voting against and working against their own interests, but working against each other. And I had to understand what that was. How have we internalized patriarchy? How have we internalized matriarchy in a way that is destroying ourselves and destroying each other? What are we policing in ourselves and then policing in each other that's a, a kind of violence? Because I couldn't find a lot of men specifically. Yes, men are privileged by patriarchy, of course. But I couldn't say like, oh, it's it's my husband. Oh, it's my boss. It's definitely my husband. I'm t- <laughs> I know. My husband's like, can you stop writing books? He would say that to me. He was like, gosh, Marisa, <laughs> it's a conversation every week in my household. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. But so much of it is just like, you know. A simple example is I'm married to a lovely guy, feminist. I'm the, we're both income earners. I'm the primary breadwinner and he's a very present father. He still doesn't do nearly the same amount as I do. And he, you know, will point things out. Like you have never watched more than 20 minutes of a movie with me. Can you just like sit without getting up to do something or like get your computer or go do dishes. Like I have that compulsion in me that to drive, to do stuff. And 
I'm like, no, you don't understand. You don't, he doesn't have, you know, as a man, the same internal programming that he should be ceaselessly doing for other people and taking care of these endless to-do lists. And that that's what's animating so many women. Yeah, the mental bandwidth, the house just screaming at you, the things to always be doing. And yeah, and just watching your your partner over there just <laughs> chilling, not, not a care in the world. He doesn't have any internal judgment about his parenting or fear of people saying that he's a bad father. You know, he's present. He's a great father. Whereas this idea of good mothers and stuff and, and whatnot is so pernicious. There's no such thing as a good mother. Exactly. It seems in this world. Yeah, it's impossible. It's pretty crazy. It's an impossible feat, that's for sure. Yeah, and, and I'm I'm myself very lucky. My, my husband, Alex, who is in my company, is my COO. And he will grab our son, who's here in the house with our nanny right now, at three, depending on when we finish. I also have a solo episode I'm working on right now. And so it's really sweet that, but he's going to be out and about with, with my son and he's going to get all the kudos in the world. And, you know, that's how it's going to be. He's just the best dad. Let's just find, I'm always like, where is the trophy that I can burnish for you, Rob? I mean, he takes the kids to the store, you know, and people are like, oh, this is so adorable. Um, meanwhile, you know, no one has ever commented publicly on my um, parenting. No, if anything, there's just silent judgment, shame, shameful judgment. I know in the beginning, kind of in the in a big part of the book, kind of one of the tenets is that patriarchy is systemic, and that's why it's so challenging. It's deeper than we really understand. And I know that you just dove into that just a little bit, but can you share a little bit more of what you discovered there and kind of how it's permeating in a lot of just all these constructs that create our society? So I wrote a chapter in the books, this brief history of patriarchy, which people have permission to skip. Which I loved. You were so you said to not. And I was like, saddle up. Like, I am here. Yeah. That was my editor. She wanted to sort of emotionally prepare people for the densest chapter in the book, which comes as chapter one, but with the promise that it gets much. If you can get through that, if you can clear that hurdle, you're like, we'll sail through the rest of the book. Um, so thank you for enjoying it. I would like everyone to read it because I think we hear about something like patriarchy and we think, oh, it's just kind of always how it's been, you know, men are more powerful. They were the hunters. Women have always been sort of cave dwelling and scared and so much emerging research. And we'll never know the full story. It's all myth-making to some extent, but so much as DNA evidence evolves and science evolves and they look back at some of these sort of our prehistory, they're constantly redefining who we were. And so my premise based on a lot of other people's scholarship is that we were these affiliative partnership style societies where everyone worked communally to support life. It wouldn't have been maybe the easiest time to be alive. There was a minimal amount of hunting, a lot of foraging, a lot of gathering, some planting. Men and women both hunted there were female warriors, there were female Vikings. Women have always, maybe not at the same rates, although I talk about this um, discovery in um, the Andes of these graves, 26 graves. This was in the New York Times a few years ago. Warriors, and they had always assumed that they were all men. 
And then when they examined them again with new scientific tools, they realized that 10 of the 26 were women. So I think we're just going to continually be challenged or confronted in this story that we've told. And you look at um, a settlement like Kadohayuk in modern day Turkey, and the men and women were essentially the same size. They were eating the same diet. So men weren't getting a preferable amount of calories or better calories, which you do see in some settlements. They had the same amount of soot in their lungs. So they were spending the same amount of time in the kitchen indoors. And so you think about where we are now and how much of that is, and we'll never know the answer to this question, but how much of it is nature versus culture? Are men significantly larger than women because that's just nature or because we've bred that into us over time through culture and through a dominance-based oppressive patriarchal style of living, which has really been around for I don't know, 8,000 years, not that long in the span. No, it hasn't been that long. It's only been, I think, like eight to 10,000 years when things started to really, the, the, it shifted, right? The tide turned. It shifted. Yes. So we moved from this and there are, you know, this is happening at different times around the globe. At different places. Yeah. Yeah. But in the Judeo-Christian patriarchy that we know now, it's, really changed. And what's amazing about this science of this is that there was this UCLA anthropologist named Maria Gambutas, and she's been dead for a while, but she did a lot of incredible scholarship around these goddess figurines that were found where there weren't really male corollaries, but there were these sort of totems, these, they could have been an equivalent to a Barbie doll. They could have been birthing talismans. They could have been goddesses. She didn't make a ton of claims, but her work about sort of early matrilineal, there was not a matriarchy in the sense really ever of an oppressive female dominated culture, but there were some matrilineal cultures and they were more balanced. Like it was, there was equality, yeah, across the board. Like everyone had a role and everyone's role was very important. But it wasn't this like men are subservient, men are enslaved, men are property. That hasn't, as far as I know, existed. And so, nor would we want it to, right? So, but in her scholarship, which was sort of embraced in the 70s and 80s by a lot of feminist writers who maybe made some leaps in terms of their being sort of everything was a matriarchy, um, which isn't true. She was trashed, Gambutas was. And one of her main theories was that around 8,000 years ago, I believe I could be slightly off, but that there were these warring tribes that came down from the north, the Kurgans, that descended into sort of this fertile valley where where Judeo-Christianity developed and raped, pillaged, enslaved women and children, killed men. And that's where patriarchy and property first took root in that part of the world. And so she was mocked. She had passed by this point, but like just trashed by other academics, even though men had, of course, made sweeping arguments about our prehistory all the time. And then in recent years, DNA evidence has shown that she was right. And that the DNA completely turned over, that the sort of the men had been killed, et cetera, and that it had been taken over by these, this Kurgan line, which is fascinating. And then you see sort of the creation first 
of just a patriarchy that's more Hammurabi's code. Um, an adulterous woman will be um, stoned and drowned. An adulterous man will pay a, you know, $10 fine. The stuff that doesn't feel that dissimilar from, from where we are today. And then we see monotheism, the destruction of the goddess, the dethroning, the sort of complete co-option of paganism and, you know, the goddess who, you know, Adam and Eve is actually a Sumerian, an ancient Sumerian tale of the goddess and a snake in the garden, which becomes sort of co-opted and things really start to change. And it really starts to change for women because not only are we subservient and classed as property a very you know from on along a spectrum of um from sort of veiled and quote unquote pure to you know a woman who has many partners or one of uh, levels of respectability we it starts to be paired with morality and we start to have this sort of god the father who's dictating the pravity of the woman and the need to uh, dominate and overcome the base desires of the body and the feminine. And and here we are. One of the things that I, as you were kind of pointing out, you know, when we, you know, before this major shift, that there was their equality. And it's really fascinating how, you know, even in today's modern time, obviously we are, women are being subconsciously driven by these, but we are really wearing all the hats and doing all the roles today and really showing up in society. And I would just say, you know, in the last couple hundred years, I mean, mind you, we're not, we're not where we get to be. We're not getting paid the way we should be. We're not being honored as mothers. You know, where childcare is very challenging. There's a lot of struggles and there were a lot of obstacles in our way, but man, we are doing the deal. Like we are, you know, running businesses and mothering our children and taking care of our communities and really trying to stand as equals. I mean, definitely doing the work. Women are like boxers training at high altitude. And we've been outperforming men actually at school for a century. So this isn't a new innovation too. It's not like women have only just stumbled upon our innate intelligence. Um, this is, we're we're really, I think in some ways... Your ability to endure in systems that are not built for you makes you incredibly strong. And so you look at sort of who's holding up democracy right now. It's Black women, right, who are extra steps removed from power. And they are incredibly well-versed, unfortunately, in our sick society in order and how to survive and ideally thrive. And so you think about women and then you think about sort of the other distinguishing factors in our birth and then you think about sort of white men who have been in power for millennia primarily and sort of the le levels of power within masculinity and it's really not that our sympathy should be reserved for men but i am definitely concerned because i think women know how to dream about a different future we know how to work for it and we know how to build it i really think that that's true and i think that part of what i why i wanted to write this book is for us to be conscious of what's driving us internally around these ideas of goodness and starting to let those go as mediated by an external 
judge. We are good. Of course, we're good. And to sort of stop worrying, like, are people going to think I'm a good mother? Are people going to think I like it? The worst thing you can say about a woman is that she's bad, bad person, uncaring, a bad mother. Men can do all sorts of things, commit crimes, et cetera. But if they still seem powerful, we still venerate them. Right. So I think for women, it's, it's this understanding what you were saying, our general excellence. We are very well equipped if we can learn how to get on side with each other, if we can learn how to uh, take and share power, if we can make sure that this isn't some sort of messed up top-down BS like we saw with the suffragettes, but instead is sort of driven from a place of equity, nurturance, care, all of the qualities that we have. My hope is that men... And we can get into sort of the masculine and the feminine, but men are just like, oh man, they really need to learn how to let their feminine come up. They really need to under- learn how to be in a very different way to be more feminine. You know, I think women are very comfortable in their masculine and their feminine. And men have been told that they absolutely cannot be in their feminine because it makes them weak and womanly. And meanwhile, it's like they desperately need to like feel that energy of nurturance and care and creativity and listening and receptivity. And I don't know. I hope they can bridge it. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, yeah, that's definitely the kind of the struggle that we're seeing play out, you know, because I think you're right. Women can kind of they know how to be feminine and masculine, although I will say that I, I know I was bred to be a very masculine woman. I was was raised by a single mom who was really trying to survive in the 80s in a corporate world. And so we were really bred to my sister and I to just like, like just survive, you know, and and like get it done. And, um, And so it was really an unlearning to not operate in a masculine and kind of a survival way because it, well, one, it's exhausting you know, over time, you just can't main you can't maintain that forever. And it's not it's obviously not healthy for a number of reasons. A thousand percent. I'm much more comfortable in my masculine, too. And so learning how to be more in my feminine has not been easy at all, but essential because only sort of in your feminine can you really receive uh, nurturance and care and support and not constantly be sort of in that throttled doing, structuring, organizing, directing, et cetera, mode. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I know that you're going to be touched, you touch upon that in the book as well. And just like how we can make it work and how, how we can come to a place where we're creating from a place of not judging ourselves, not having shame. And I really kind of want to pivot into the the seven deadly sins. I grew up Catholic. Okay. So you're well aware. I'm well aware of these. Um, I went to Catholic school. But did you know they weren't in the Bible? I had no idea. They're not telling you that. <laughs> this is the institution that, you know, that Adam and, the Adam and Eve story had been <laughs> reworked. So no, they weren't. I had no idea that initial, that it had come from this monk. Yeah, it's wild because, and people have sort of come at me on Instagram where they're like, this is anti-God and, you know, Jesus. I'm like, these are not from Jesus. Like learn your history. This is not Jesus. This is Pope Gregory the first in the sixth century. This is a desert monk in the fourth century. Yeah, it's co-opting. It's co-opting. I'm like that, you know what? That looks 
convenient. Let me, let me just borrow that. It's amazing. Like where these stories come from too, and then how they just become what we run on, you know? Anyway, go ahead. Do you want me to say what they are? Remind me. Yeah, I would love for you to say what they are. I know them, but I would love for you to say what they are. And then I'd love to start with, if you're down to start with a couple of these, I would love to really dive into envy. I was really fascinated at, you know, regarding your conversation around what envy can really tell us about what we want and need and how we can really explore that in a way that can honor us and really get us what we need opposed to, you know, this kind of negative driver. So I'll do the order that I write about them in the book. There's kind of no official order, but pride is sort of seen as the head sin by Pope Gregory and company. But anyway, they are sloth, envy, pride, greed, gluttony, lust, anger. And then when they were fir- first written down by this desert monk in the fourth century, there were they were eight thoughts. This is before they became the cardinal vices. And the eighth thought was sadness. And so I included that in the book as um, it was described by him as having a feminine soul. And I don't know why Pope Gregory didn't think it made this set, but um, I write about it as being lodged primarily in the minds of men as something to repress and deny. And that the primary symptom of that is toxic masculinity. When you sever men from their feelings, they become disconnected from life. So Envy is near the front of the book because I write about it as the gateway sin. Envy shows us what we want, which is revolutionary in a culture that conditions women to believe that they should subjugate their their wants to other people's needs. To want things is unseemly, bad, selfish. Uh, Maybe if there are resources left over, sure, but really it's, it's not appropriate to prioritize what you want for your life over the needs of other people. And I was talking to psychotherapist Lori Gottlieb, who wrote an amazing book. Maybe you should talk to someone if you haven't read it. It's great. And she had this small aside in her book about how she tells clients to pay attention to their envy because it shows them what they want. And I was interviewing her many years ago and I asked her about this because it felt like such a light bulb And I asked her if it was gendered and she said she didn't know, but that women are so much more, are so much less comfortable with feelings that we think are bad so that she would guess, yes, more common with women, but undiagnosed. And so started thinking about this idea of what we want and envy and women. And my theory is that because Envy feels so bad. It seems so malicious and gross that we suppress it. The minute it starts to come up, we just shove it down and it comes out sideways. And so when we're sort of railing on that other school mom or that woman who drives us crazy, we don't recognize that it's envy. And so when we say things like, I don't like her, or she rubs me the wrong way, or who does she think she is? It's really because she's doing something that we want for ourselves or has something that we want for ourselves. And it's our soul's way of sort of knocking on the door and saying, pay attention to this. This is really important information. This woman is pushing on a dream you have for yourself or she has a quality or that you want. It could be that she drives you crazy because she's so comfortable speaking up for herself 
or she, or having people's attention on her or her body. There's something in what she's doing. It might be her career. It might be um, how she looks or that she has kids. Effortlessly takes care of her kids and it all just, you know, yes. And you just shut it down. It could be any number of things. It's just it's probably not the whole package. But when people irritate you, they are or torment you, to quote Richard Schwartz, there are your greatest mentors, these tormentors. And they are giving you information because as you'll also note, the same women don't drive your friends nuts in the same way. It's typically sort of this intimate one-to-one relationship that where you kind of recognize that it's not logical. And this is not to say, I just want to be clear, like there are women in the culture who are pushing hateful legislation, harming people having an aversion for them or that behavior specifically is not jealousy. Right. That that is your gut telling you that this isn't okay. That's very different than this sort of feeling of like, oh, just bothers me. Yeah. This reactive feeling, this kind of, you know, it's it, it's your stuff. Something's coming up for you that is looking to be reviewed. You know, in all the patients that I've taken care of over the years, you know, asking women if they know what they they need or want and or what what even brings them joy. And so few people, women have ever known. Like no one's ever asked them or they never sat down to think about it. You know, again, growing up in a Mexican Catholic family, you always sacrificed yourself. Like that was just the way it is. And guilt was currency in my household. You know, it just, you always being made to feel guilty for, you know, putting yourselves first. I remember being called selfish growing up so many times. I just, I couldn't even count my head spun so much from being called that. I mean, that was just the way that, that the women in my family thought of it. And so it's crazy to, to think that we, you know, we can grow up and never even have a sense of what our needs and wants and desires are, and don't even have a process for exploring them. Um, or even put ourselves first. I always ask women, I'm like, you know, if you don't put yourself first, who's going to? Is somebody is somebody going to be like, oh, you know what? I doesn't look like you're putting yourself first today. Let me let me help you with that. Like, n- nobody. No. And it's such a powerful tool. And, and what I love about the sins is they sort of all bump into each other. And thinking about this idea of needs and wants and not enough and getting into greed, for example, you know, and the way that so many of us think about money specifically as base and gross and not something that we should want or cultivate and that men, money is for men and not for us. And even thinking about sort of needs, wants, not enough in that context for me, it was like a, a breakthrough moment. I had left my full-time job. This is in COVID. Everything was very uncertain. I was freaking out about not having enough. And I spoke to this woman who is one of my spiritual teachers. And she said, okay, well, what do you need? And what do you want? What is enough? And she wanted me to concretize it, to like actually articulate and define what that is. And I said, oh, I don't know. I just don't have enough. And she said, people always come to me and they say, I don't have enough. And they don't know what that even means. And I promise you, the divine is very good at serving needs, but it is on you to articulate what those needs are. Less good at serving wants. Sometimes it happens. But 
she made me write it down. I made an Excel spreadsheet with tabs and I wrote down all of my needs, the, my mortgage, paying for childcare, um, paying for Vicky, paying for her health insurance for her and her husband, car payments, et cetera. Like the, all the stuff that defines our lives that we need, groceries, et cetera. And then, so that was amazing because I actually really, and I know a lot of people, but I feel like we sort of lost budgeting. I'm sure some people are really good at this, but I never learned the sort of that financial literacy of make a budget as everything sort of moved to credit, et cetera. So for me, it was an amazing experience to write it all down and be like, okay, that's what I need in order to meet my needs. I need, And I can do that. I can see that and I can figure out, I can work backwards and figure this out. And then with the my wants, it was really hard how much anxiety, shame came up for wanting anything. And it took, I was like, okay, I want to take my kids to Montana where I'm from to ride horses and to ski. I want new ski boots. I want... And and then to also in the same revelation be like, oh, there are all these things that I've been conditioned to think that I want that I don't want. I don't want a second home. I want to go on a couple trips. You know, I don't want a fancy sports car. I don't want a closet full of handbags. I just, there's so many things I don't care about at all that it was really clarifying to, and very peacemaking to get honest with myself. And then I did the same thing in terms of what I want for my career. Because again, I had never done it. I had never, ever done that. I'm curious about the career path too, because I know that for so many women, you know, the good girl path, being told to be a good girl, get the good grades, here's your trajectory, you gotta go get married or whatever that may be. Did you find yourself following a path that you didn't even know you were following at any point? Yes and no. So I always had a job, always starting when I was 14, probably. I I worked through college. I've I've just always I always had a job. Always. There were a couple months after I graduated from college when the economy was sort of totally in the toilet and in 2002 when I did not have a job, which was terrifying. And then I had always had a job if not more than one. And and I think it was like driven by that anxiety or lack of security or feelings of safety and scarcity that I always had at least one job and then always side hustle. So ghostwriting books, some consulting, like I never felt like I could relax unless I were sitting on a three-legged stool, which definitely burnt me out and was has been way too much and a level of productivity that I haven't been able to sustain, which has been hard, but an essential part of getting a little wiser. Yeah. And how was, how has that healing been? It's the lesson I find I'm always learning. Well, this book is the first experience that I've ever had of sort of being, yes, like you sell your book to an editor, a publisher, and then it goes out into the world and then it exists. And people buy it. And it takes years to earn out your advance. Many people don't ever earn out their advances. And then you start making some money. Then you start making some money on the back end. But it's the first time I've ever created something where I'm like, oh, 
this then is like passive income potentially, or it could generate, I could speak, I could, I don't know. There's some, I've always, I've been so entrained that my compensation needs to be directly tied to sort of the pain of creation that to have, this is like the first time I've ever had an experience like this, where it's like, huh, I see how you can start to sort of like build a world where you make money without every having to sort of create something every single time or twice, you know, I write a newsletter twice a week. I host a podcast once a week. I mean, you're aware of the same sort of like transactional nature of your work where you do something and then hope like more people will pay for a subscription or people will, more advertisers will come or whatever it may be. Yeah. The multiple buckets and yeah, the, the intention of, you know, that the content that we're creating you know, continues to support us down the road. Yeah, hopefully, yeah. So, but even even still with that, I guess for me, and I think for so many women, like even with motherhood, like I'm going to come out of this, I'm going to get this, I'm going to get it to my team like I'm supposed to do. I'm going to go and work on the other thing before my, my, my family comes home. And then, and if I've got time, I'm going to, there's, we just got home from a trip last night. We, I am, I'm the person who unpacks us usually within three hours of being here. And we got home super late, so we, I didn't have a chance to do that. Like there is a endless list of things for me to do once I hit downstairs, you know, that be- becomes household mom activities. Not, that's not this business, you know? And so just, you know, I was just curious about the pervasiveness of, like you said, money being tied to our productivity, our worth being tied to our productivity and just the the cat or the dog just chasing the tail all the time. And it's so perverse for women and sort of anything that qualifies as the feminine, because as we know, and we learned in COVID, the care that we provide has zero value in terms of GDP, right? The way that we remunerate jobs of care nurses, teachers, frontline workers is completely backwards, right? Like we literally die. Like we foundationally fail without those levers of care in our culture, the people who grow and pick and harvest our food. And yet we are remunerating, you know, the CEO who lives down the street, who is only sort of pillaging and destroying the planet, not actually doing anything that makes our lives more tenable or better, right? We recognize we live in this upside down world. And I think that that makes it hard. I think women are so connected to the planet. We cycle with the moon, we create, I mean, it's amazing what we do. It's stunning. And and so much of patriarchy has been about the suppression of the feminine, of matter, which etymologically means mother, of the baseness of, of all of this, that earth, that the planet is to be, you know, corralled and used and mined and excavated. And so I think that women also with money, it's like we run into this wall of like, we can't pay our ecological credit card debt this idea of more is uh, pernicious. And then you have to remember like money inherently is an energy. It's just a current. And and so it's sort of a little bit of a retraining around moving it from like, it's, it's not, we can do great things with it. Women are really more philanthropic, more generous. We're better investors. We trade less, et cetera. So retraining. We give back to our communities. 
Yeah. And then recognizing that sort of this call to consumerism, which is pushed on women as the household CEO, and that it's our job to support the economy with our spending and to be like, actually, no, I'm only going to spend money on things that I care about, on like things that enhance my life. That's very powerful. And so I think sort of in, I don't know if you feel this way too, but like in the work that I do create, asking people to pay me, you know, for the newsletter, asking things that I would like shy away from because so many of the things that women create, so many of the feminine thing, creations, art, content, it's like, oh, of course that should be free. It should be free like care should be free. And it's like, do you understand actually the emotional labor of caring and creating? And so I feel like part of... Yeah, the vulnerability of it. Yeah. And part of our job is to like ask for remuneration and as some sort of rebalancing. Well, and then us coming under fire for doing so as well. It's not easy, but it's like, it, it has to be done. It has to be modeled until it becomes sort of status quo. And, and that's very, it's very hard. I'm not saying it's easy. It's really hard. And yes, there's so much pushback, but part of that's part of the retraining, I think that we all need to do. You know, that, that question of, gosh, how do we start? How do we start the retraining? I mean, one, it's the awareness. It's the conversations that we're having right now. It is the, it's the boundary setting. It is the deciding you know, how many balls we really need to have in the air. It's deciding to give ourselves rest. Um, it's really going against everything we've been told or everything that's kind of like kind of driving us. I find it to be so challenging. And I find it to be, I find it comes up for review all the time. It's like the lesson that we have to keep learning. For as much as I feel like I know this, Man, I just I can I can find myself getting caught right back in the cycle of it because it's it's in everything that I live. I agree. It's really hard, but it is exactly this. It's interrupting those conversations and voices in our head. It's recognizing that this isn't you. This is a cultural voice that's you know extolling you to behave or pursue goodness at all costs. And then it's it's really I think starts to change when there is a willingness to misbehave, when there's a willingness or sort of allyship amongst women, particularly white women, I, you know, argue that sort of the closer you are to sort of patriarchal power, the more subscribed you are, the more sort of caught betwixt and between. And it's hard. I get it because women are sort of like, well, this is my security and safety and I don't know where else to go. But Part of it is sort of leaning into the bravery of saying the truth out loud and pushing against these ideas of what it means to be good and what it means to be valorized solely for that goodness. And to say, no, actually, I'm going to let my anger come up. I'm going to express my needs. I'm going to assert boundaries. I'm going to go after what I want. I'm going to recognize my envy and process it and live with it and let it be information for me so that I can stand with other women, not against them. But I think, you know, we start to build a movement. We start to model for each other what's possible 
And through that sort of pushing also against these ideas of, of scarcity. Oh, there's only room for one. Oh, because she has this, I can't have it too. Oh, like I, that will never happen because nobody has ever done that. And I think the more that we misbehave for each other, the more hopeful I am that we can tell a different story in the future. And Elise, do you think, do you find, as we're wrapping up, do you find that you're seeing that shift happen? I mean, I've always been, I always, I always tell everyone, I, I serve everyone by serving women. It's, it's the work I'm here to do in the world. And I know that I'm serving, I'm serving their families, I'm serving their partners, I'm serving communities. And I've always been um, the, a crusader of women. I love women. I want to be supporting them. I want to be, you know, um, celebrating and um, the whole, the, the idea that women are pinned against each other and that we are beating each other up and there's so much shame that's put on us that it's mind blowing to me that I'm like, was this weaponized? Like, were we taught to do this? Because it doesn't work and it, it works us in the opposite direction of what we're looking to gain. And so I, I don't know if, if this is something you go, I only, like I said, I've only gone through half the book. Um, if this is something you dive deeper into or if you see a shift here. Because it's heartbreaking to see how often we bash each other. I'm hopeful in part because, you know, this I've been living alone with this book with my editor for a couple of years now. And to see it sort of start to be read and discussed and the messages that I've received from women who feel like I'm sort of in their head, that we're the same person, that I'm giving voice to things that they've always felt but haven't known how to say or didn't recognize were connected. I think that, honestly, as mentioned, like women are amazing, as you know, and that if we start to break these spells, and I think it's within our power, like I don't think that anyone has to sort of grant us power from this system. I think it's just a process of like removing all of these internal blocks so that we can step forward and support each other, push each other forward, I think it starts to change dramatically. I really do. I have a lot of, I, I mean, and you can say like, you look at, oh, Stacey Abrams, you look at sort of women who are sort of operating outside of patriarchy in that way. And you look at what they've already managed to lead and achieve. And she's obviously like exemplary on so many levels. So Maybe she's not an accessible sort of like every woman. She even writes like novels. I mean, she's amazing. Yeah, I'm just always so inspired by the mountain she moves. And so you think about that starting to scale. And she's obviously not the only one. And that's pretty thrilling to me to think about what it actually looks like if we all get on the same side. And not against men, bringing men into the next... And men too, we need men, but like moving everyone, evolving into sort of the next era of balance. Of who of who we all get to be of that balance. Exactly. I love it. And I love this book so much. I'm so excited to continue to devour it. And I just want, I, I think a big part outside of the conversations and listening to this is to have beautiful resources like this gorgeous book that you, I know you spent so much time on and dove into the research and so beautifully curated it. I know there are more books in your future. That is for sure. I hope so. <laughs> well, Elise, thank you so much, Elise, for coming. Thank you for having me and good luck with everything that you have to do. I'm sorry. Thank you. Oh, no worries. It is what it is. <laughs> Bye.
Bye. After reading Elise's book over the last week on our best behavior, Elise does an amazing job at nailing the connection of our actions as they relate to the seven deadly sins and how they've been passed down through generations unconsciously. And not only does she walk us through each sin, but shows us a path towards feeling more authentically ourselves and more whole in the process. So yes, there is a light at the end of the tunnel. She helps us to pull the veil covering our eyes and gives us phenomenal perspective and then ways in which that we can begin to heal and begin to shift the way that we operate here in this world. Now, if you have struggled with self-sacrifice and feeling the need to be good or finding yourself needing to be perfect, I'm telling you, this book is for you. If you are just looking for a perspective, go and grab On Our Best Behavior. It'll be in the show notes for you to go and grab it. And I hope I hope that it just gives you a bit of clarity like it has me, and it just put into words how I've just been feeling. And if this interview today with Elise has shed any light on what you've experienced, by all means, please go and subscribe to the show. Go and check out her show, Pulling the Thread. And if you have a chance, feel free to rate the podcast um, because I know that more women are looking for answers. They're looking to become the CEO of their health. And by shining a light on this show, hopefully I can help them get there. Until the next episode, have an amazing day. 